Welcome to the Taproot Podcast with Lauren and Lon, a space to reconnect with the source of your passion for education and be replenished. Welcome to episode four, everyone. Um, we've you got. Keep counting. I mean, four. I, I mean, think we're it's proud. A, we're proud. It's, it's really good. Four is we we survived this yes. long, so. Yes. Four means pretty now solid. we're at the foundational point. We've set a foundation I, now. Yes, agreed. So we've got quite a bit to jump into today and related oh, to that content. Uh, we actually wanted to help all of you listening kind of connect with us and um, our story and why we're doing the work that we're doing. And so with that goes a theme check-in question. And uh, it's about our experience in school and equity challenges. And so, Lauren, um, what is and what is one of your earliest recollections of an equity challenge that you encountered? So, my earliest recollection um, goes back to elementary school, actually, and I think it—I want to say it was like third grade, maybe fourth grade. What happened was a letter was sent home to my parents asking if they would give permission for me to take the gate test. And at the time, I had no idea what gate was. I'm not sure my parents really had a clear idea of what it was either. Um, but my mother's response was, no, absolutely not. And her, I don't completely remember her reasoning. I think it was because she just didn't want me to be somehow separated off. She... I think she was concerned that if I was in this program, this gifted and talented education program, that it would mean a lot of work and she would have to deal with me at home trying to get me to do all this work. And <laughs> to be honest with you, <laughs> I, um, I, could, I could test like crazy. Um, but in terms of like doing homework and stuff, I wasn't fantastic at that. And so I think my mom just was like, oh man, I don't want to have to deal with her and fight with her to do work, blah, blah. She's not taking this test. After the test was administered, uh, the, all of us kids were kind of separated out, right? Um, like this little mini tracking. And I noticed um, as I got older, especially, it wasn't quite as notable, noticeable in elementary school because we were still all in the same class and um, I still, you know, traveled with the, the reading nerds. And, um, but once I got into middle school, it was really obvious uh, that my friends all went another direction and I was sort of stuck in a place where I was in classes where I didn't feel particularly challenged. And um, there was this one class, seventh grade. I want to say it was like pre-algebra in seventh grade. And we literally were separated in the seating chart. Can you can you imagine this? Can you picture this in your That's mind? That's crazy. Yeah, we were literally gate kids on this side of the room, everybody else on this side of the room. Can you imagine was, doing that now? I know. That's kind of odd. Right. It's really intense. And then my seventh grade math teacher taught to the gate side of the room, like looked at them, talked to them, oh my spent gosh. the most physical time on that side of the classroom. And the rest of us were just left as like, yeah, you guys are not going to get this. 
And Jeez. of course I didn't. And of course I tuned out and I felt I that was the class where I felt really ashamed. Just really ashamed that I was so terrible at math. And it had always been sort of a struggle for me in elementary school, but I don't remember feeling shame. I felt frustrated, but I didn't feel shamed. And so seventh grade was the first time that I really felt shamed. And it was clear to me that there was that group of kids and then there was the rest of us. And then my rest of my middle school experience and my high school experience was this total separation. That's so. really interesting. I'm sure a lot of math teachers out there are just cringing. Because, I know. I mean, I'm so sorry, math colleagues. I know that you I think so hard not to be like that now. I, th- I know. I think that they're cringing because um, I know so many math teachers like have said that they get people who just, or they get students who just, you know, are really locked into, I'm not good at math. And, you know, for to start that early, I'm like, just imagining, you know, as a math teacher in high school, having to fight against that. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's where I'm, I'm imagining the level of cringe comes from. I know. Um, and just to make them feel a little better, I had a couple of math teachers that really um, tried hard with me and did um, help me make some progress. And I got back on track once I got to um, the community college, but it was definitely a big hole to try to get out of. For me, there were um, there was things that I realized at the time that I was in high school, and then there were things that I looked back. And mm-hmm. when I was in college, it was very evident that mm-hmm. it was an inequity was an inequity. And um, but the one that comes to mind for me is uh, was really and like many students out there, you know, having come from a family who's you know my parents don't really speak English very well, um, you know they barely have a high school education and navigating the college process and knowing what classes to take and what tests and all that. Yeah. Um, it, to me in high school, just navigating that process, it just became really apparent that it seemed like there were other people that knew things that I didn't know. Right. right? It seemed like there were people who somehow knew about the scholarship and, but I didn't find out about it. Um, and this one I think was a big one was, I mean, I knew that the SAT was like a big, important test, but I didn't realize it was a thing that you intensely studied for. So um, <laughs> I'm not being able to afford the prep classes that people were in, which could cost oh, up to right. like $1,000 and also having the not really being able to afford or honestly like being... I never like asking my parents for money as a kid because I knew we were tight on money. And so not being able to get the prep books. Um, and so I really literally just signed up for the SAT, flipped through some tips online the night before and walked in and took it. Wow. And that was like the extent of my studying with the SAT. And so then, you know, as I got to college and I just kind of, you know, I, I talked to people who went to very different schooling situations you know, they came in with two years of AP credits, perfect SAT scores, you know, talked about summers spent studying SATs, uh, SATs. I was like, I didn't like, that's something I didn't understand. I mean, I somehow managed to make it into this particular college, but I was just, to me, it was so clear that like that process, that lack of, um, you know, my parents not having gone through this experience or having easy access to people who have gone through the experience of trying to get into college. Like it's, you know, um, I think for me, it was just interesting how those inequities actually 
persisted throughout my college experience. And so, you know, I was with, I was in, you know, roommates with people who had two years of experience. That's two years of tuition. You don't, or two years of credits. That's two years of tuition. You don't have to pay. Right. You know? And then on top of that, at least my particular school, like the more credits you had, the better enrollment time you got. Uh So because of that better enrollment time, you actually got your pick of the classes, the best professors, the best, it just, it kind of blew my mind how much my high school experience really was continuing to negatively affect me in college. Yeah, that's like for me from from elementary to high school. It's it's really amazing how the stuff kind of snowballs, right? Yeah. And so uh the reason why we wanted to take a moment to just share a little bit about our experience is that, you know, yeah, our experience informs why we're here or what work yes. we find important. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about equity and what is equity, right? And so I I think that's a big uh, overall theme of this episode is just exploring this term that's being thrown around a lot right now. It's definitely coming up a lot. I'm actually surprised. I've heard equity more in the last, I want to say, two weeks than I have since I've been in this job. I know that last week when we were talking to Dr. Winters, it came up a couple of times, especially regarding distance learning and um, do students have the, all the equipment they need? Do they all have internet access? So that came up in our conversation. And then um, we also had the grading forum last week, grading in the time of COVID-19. And in that conversation, equity came up quite a bit. Uh, And then the next time that I remember it being really powerful in the conversation, um, Luis and I were talking, Luis Lopez, um, who is the equity TOSA in the curriculum department, um, we were talking with our restorative practice and social-emotional learning lead teachers, and several of them brought up how they're seeing these big equity challenges and they're feeling um, powerless to be able to do anything about it. And so equity is definitely on people's minds right now. And we know that uh, COVID, the magnification effect of COVID is in, is in full effect. Yes. I think that like, I think that what's different, you know, it's definitely we said this, I think, probably about two other times in past episodes at this point, but that this pandemic has made it ever more clear the inequities that have already existed, right? Like those, if I had to use a metaphor, I'd say like the fault lines, right, in our system that have existed. And it is like now an earthquake is happening along those fault lines and everyone's like, whoa, um, now we're paying attention to those fault lines. Yes. And so I think that, you know, again, this whole experience is magnifying the inequities that do exist. And I think that the reason why what makes it so obvious to people is that things lower on Maslow's hierarchy, right? Um, yes. Like shelter, food, uh, safety, that kind of stuff is actually what is in our face, right? Like there's, it's hard for us to ignore that, you know, people are going without food, people are going without housing, that people are dying. And then it makes us go, whoa, like what's happening. But, you know, yes. it's kind of really to understand where we are now, you have to follow the storyline, you know, right. and there is a, th- there's a direct thread right. from how things are to what we're experiencing now. 
I also want to throw out there that um, the most recent research tells us that love and belonging is actually in that first level. And this social distancing, you know, this being disconnected uh, is also greatly impacting our stability, our security. And so the COVID magnification effect is real. And I love your example of the fault lines because, yes, um, this these fault lines have been with us always. And now because of this earthquake, right, we're really noticing them. We're really starting to pay attention to them. Yeah, and I think it's also – Part of it is that it's now impacting, it's impacting people, right? Us, the the people Mm -hmm. in power, right? Like now we're feeling it, right? It's not just, oh, hey, there's a fault line there that could cause a really huge problem if an earthquake happens, right? Now it's like, okay, the earthquake is here. My house is on top of this particular tectonic plate and (laughs) it's shaking. I cannot deny that you know, if I want to understand what's happening, it's undeniable that it's, you know, the intensity of this earthquake is due to being on top of a fault line. I mean, Lauren, I never would have guessed that we were going to have tectonic plate references in our <laughs> podcast. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm I can't for it. help it. I am it. here for it. The science life is just in my DNA. I cannot, right. I cannot get away from it. It cannot get away from me. Right. And I'm thinking too that one of the reasons why there's this exacerbation of this long-standing problem is because teachers for a very long time have tried to stand in the gap, right? If you imagine teachers uh, laying down over these fault lines Mm, and trying to build some bridges, right? And teachers have constantly been trying to, to prop up a dysfunctional system by, you know, buying supplies for kids, buying food for kids, um, providing a lot of emotional stability for kids in the school environment. And what we're seeing right now is teachers with their hands tied behind their back uh, because we cannot do all of the things that we were doing. And that is also what is making these equity gaps extra noticeable. It makes you think of why has our system had to rely on teachers to close the gap to, you know, literally be the bridge. Well, and And we're not even closing it. We're just making it. I don't even know. It's like, it's like a very, very weak bandaid because we can't be all things to all people. We cannot, I mean, you cannot take a person and repair a fault line. You just can't repair a system really. And so, yes. Yeah. So we wanted to just bring this up because, you know, this word equity is thrown around and in our work and Lauren and I's work, you know, we experience um, people and have conversations about equity. And it seems like everyone has a different understanding of equity, right? Definitely. Well, and even why, like, why do we have an equity and culture department, right? I've I've heard, I heard that a lot (laughs) pre-quarantine. A lot of calling into question, do we really need this? Why does this um, department exist? And this department, by the way, is like the two of us. Hi, we're equity and culture. (laughs) Um, And why do we have this? Why is this really necessary? And I'm hoping that people are seeing now how necessary it really is. And um, 
our work revolves around our district's um, LCAP goal. And, you know, this is a funding goal. These are goals we have to submit to the state to say this is how we're going to spend our money. And so the goal that Lon and I are always working on is um, creating a safe and healthy environment for each student by building a culture of equity and a positive climate that promotes excellence throughout the district. That's pretty major. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, a normal Monday morning, really. So in this definition, you can see that a big piece of it is building a culture of equity. When you read it as a sentence, it sounds like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. But when you think of what does it take to do that, uh, that's a whole other kettle of fish. And so we need to dive into what even is equity so that we can think about what it means to build a culture of equity. How does that sound, Lon? That sounds all right. I mean, if the listeners are ready, uh, strap in your seatbelt. It's going to be I mean, a yes. Uh, hunker, <laughs> get, get comfortable. Um, make sure you've got your, you know, cup of tea, cup of coffee, your happy hour beverage of choice, because here we go. Here we go. Let's do it. What's equity? Okay. So in the context of education, equity means making sure that each student has what they need in order to accomplish their educational goals. Our first, the first big kind of educational goal that we can think of is, you know, graduating from high school, right? That's sort of a, that's sort of an obvious one. And so as uh, students come in to the educational system from kindergarten all the way to 12th grade, they're not all going to arrive the same way. They're not all going to arrive with the same um, preparation or readiness. They're not all going to arrive with the same access to resources. They're not all going to arrive with the same set of physical or cognitive skills they're not all going to arrive with the same um, access to English as a familiar language. And so just by being human beings, because human beings are diverse and varied, um, they're naturally going to arrive at different places. And some of those places uh, have to do with societal factors that we have yet to um, repair. And some of those issues have to do with just how you were born, right? If I'm a student who was born with a hearing loss, then I'm coming into a classroom full of students that mostly are hearing impaired, and I'm going to have needs that they don't. Uh, so equity means making sure that each student has whatever they need to be able to ultimately reach their educational goals. Yeah, and some of the other societal factors that do play into how students show up are very, they're complex and varied. And um, they could be like an example that Lauren just shared, um, anything from that to poverty in this country, um, poverty, racism, and um, all those things affect, have cumulative effects over any human's life. Um, And so those are going to show up in the classroom, right? Because we are teaching the public. We are teaching everyone, right? And so, you know, educators are very adjacent to that reality. And so, I mean, really, I think just that simple definition of equity as being getting 
students what they need to succeed. It's a very simple definition and most people would probably nod their head at it. But if you actually get a bit deeper, the implications of that actually are quite wide. Um, When we, if we accept the fact that students come in with, from different backgrounds, um, with, with different obstacles, right. Um, I shared a bit about, you know, my parents not having, they don't speak English, um, and it's not their first language. And so that's like, that's an obstacle. And so if we truly accept that that's the case, right, then it makes it easier for us to see that the work of equity is quite wide and deep. Right. I also want to point out that um, it's very common for people to confuse equity and equality. And so I have an example in mind that I kind of want to share to demonstrate how equity and equality are not the same thing. So let me go back to this example of a student with hearing loss. So I actually had a student a few years ago who had hearing loss and our um, special ed department brought into my classroom a microphone. And this is before microphones were fairly common. They're pretty common now, but uh, brought in a microphone and some great speakers so that when I was teaching, this student could hear me very clearly. Um, Now, did every single student need that? No, this student did though. And what was really great was having this microphone and these good speakers was actually beneficial to everyone. It actually helped everyone out. And it actually, it helped me out. It made my life a lot easier. It helped, I mean, it saved my voice, my goodness. Once I had the experience of teaching with a microphone, I was like, well, I don't want to teach any other way. <laughs> this made my life so great. But that student had a need that not every other student had, but every other student also benefited from that student having their need met. I mean, I know that when we talk about equity, the metaphor of the racetrack is often used, right? So, yes. you know, you're saying, all right, this is a thousand meter. I don't want to say, I don't know if it's called dash sprint or there's some kind of formal term for it, but some kind of thousand meter Sports. run. <laughs> Sports. <laughs> um, 1000 meter run. And it's not everyone's starting from the starting line, right? Like many people are starting like 500 meters behind. Right. Um, And then on top of that, they have more obstacles. And so, yeah, there's crocodiles and, and giant puddles and um, moats, moats and dragons, dragons. (laughs) Yes. And then you got to solve things in the way. Yeah. And I think that that actually um, helps us transition to talking about what are the main factors of educational equity, right? Because, it's more than that. And so there's five. So the five are access, fairness, opportunity, inclusion, and outcome. So we're just going to really briefly go over this um, with you. And so I'll start with access. When we're talking about access in the terms of educational equity, we mean something a bit more deep. And what we're saying is that access isn't just about could you in theory do it. Access is about how easy is it for you to get to actually open that door, if you want to use a metaphor of walking, let's say through a door and that the understanding that for some people there's, uh, there's issues to getting that. So let's just take into example, the students and families picking up food at our schools, right? So you could say they have access to that. Sure. They have access to it. Right. But there's also potential obstacles to people actually getting that. And so it could be, for example, having a ride, 
to going and getting yeah. food. It could be having gas to get in the car to going and getting food. It could be um, having, you know, parents in the house or caretakers in the house that aren't essential workers. While, yes, people have, I'm going to say in quotes, access in the in the normal use of the term, um, they really don't have access in the sense of that if you are, um, if you have, you know, less privileges like a running car, regular income, people with disposable time, then while you know, the access in that sense really doesn't have much meaning to you, right? Because there's still obstacles that one must overcome to get that source, that food source. Um, so that access is the first one. What about the next one, fairness? Uh, fairness is about um, to what extent are these things that we're trying to access, to what extent are they unbiased? To what extent are they available to anyone, uh, no matter who you are? And so thinking about, if we go back to your access example of this, the door, well, here's the door, you can just walk in it. Um, Well, if I'm a person who um, doesn't walk, if I'm a person who's in a wheelchair, um, then I need a ramp to be able to get into that door. Um, And so that ramp provides me access. Uh, But fairness also means that thinking about what are other obstacles to the door other than my physical capability, right? Um, Are there other societal factors um, that are preventing just me from getting into the door when other people can? For example, I'm thinking about before the women's movement, Um, women were not able to sign a lease on their own. And so if you were a single woman and you wanted to rent an apartment, you couldn't do it because you're a woman. And so that's an example of fairness. That was not fair. It was biased and it was based on gender, which is something that if you're a woman, you can't do anything about that. You are a woman. (laughs) And so uh, we have to look at to what extent are there obstacles to access that are based on things about people that they can't change and shouldn't have to change. So the next element of the five factors of educational equity is opportunity. So we talked about access and fairness and access is about, does that thing exist at all, right? In your circle. Um, And then opportunity is about, well, how hard, you know, what are the obstacles that exist for me to access that thing? So, Going with the AP class example, right? Um, The very first thing that would have to exist for access would be that the school would have to offer it, right? So if the school doesn't offer it, then I actually don't have access. But let's just say the school does offer that AP government class. Well, are there any obstacles to actually being able to sign up for that AP government class? Is there a minimum test score on certain assessments? Um, Are there other processes um, by which a student would have to, you know, other hoops that they would have to jump through in order to get to that thing that does theoretically exist within their circle or within their environment or school. And so opportunity, um, educational opportunities about eliminating the obstacles that students would have to deal with in order to gain access to whatever particular thing we're talking about. And then the next factor is inclusion. And we've spent, Lana and I have spent a lot of time um, working on inclusion, which is about creating a welcoming environment for every student, for each and every student, so that um, 
each student on all of our campuses in all of our classrooms feels like they are welcomed into the space, like it's a space for them. It's a space that honors their individuality and supports who they are. And is it's made clear to them that they are accepted and part of the space. And so that's been a lot of our restorative practice work is all about uh, inclusion and not excluding anybody uh, because of any of those factors that we previously discussed that, you know, people cannot change about themselves, not excluding people based on ability or race or class or gender or socioeconomic status, et cetera. Yes. And then we reach the last of the five main factors, which is, and of course, all of these are related to each other, right? Yes. Um, but just for the purposes of explaining the uh, depth and breadth of the meaning of the word equity, we just thought it would be helpful to explain these terms. And so the last one is outcomes, um, which is eliminating the predictability of uh, outcomes, uh, of educational outcomes based on race, class, gender, or any other demographic marker, right? So if it is very predictable that you live in the zip code, then you're very likely to go to college versus this zip code where, you know, you are very unlikely to go to college. Well, what we're saying is that equitable outcomes means it's not predictable. It means that no matter where you come from, you have just the same amount of possibility and chance of going to college as anyone else from any other demographic group. And so those are the five main factors to help explain what we mean when we say equity and equity in the context of education. And so I would say that's quite the laundry list. And it's Well, and- you know, equity is no easy thing, my friend. We work with the National Equity Project, and they actually talk about equity as both a process and an outcome, Yes, right? It is a way of doing things, not simply a destination, and that the way we work toward that goal, it's something we're always going to be working toward, in and of itself, also has to be equitable. So listeners, uh, that's an awful lot of content for y'all. And we're wondering, um, what questions do you have about equity? I'm sure that you do. I'm sure that as you were listening to us just now, some things were popping up in your head and you were like, I wonder about this. I wonder about that. Um, So we would love for you to ask us those questions and we can uh, try to answer them in the episodes to come. And we would also like to hear from you about what equity challenges are at the forefront for you right now. What are the things that you're most noticing that are really glaring to you that you're maybe even feeling like your hands are tied? You can't do something about it and, and you really wish you could. So go ahead and give us a call at 619-719-5095 and leave us a voicemail message and we will do our very best to answer your questions and we would love to share any thoughts that you have about current equity challenges. Let us know. Do Hit it. Us up. Do it. All right. So that brings us to our last and uh, segment of the show called Quarantine Quirks, where we talk about funny things we've noticed about ourselves or other people. So, uh, Lauren, let's keep it brief. <laughs> let's keep it quick. What is your quirk? I am excited to hear. <laughs> well, my quirk is, I don't know if you if it qualifies as a quirk, but here we go. Um, I'm realizing how completely and totally inept I am at yard work. And (laughs) before the quarantine, 
I had somebody that was kind of helping me on and off, but of course quarantine hit and that all went away. And then there's also been a ton of rain. And so my backyard and in the front, my weeds are like out of control. It's it's really embarrassing. And so I had to actually buy a weed whacker, which <laughs> if you know me, that alone is just <laughs> hilarious. Lauren McLennan buys a weed whacker. <laughs> I, I mean, like you did offer a- to like record yourself doing it so that we could laugh. I, mean, I know. I've yet to do that. So <laughs> it could be a, like a really hilarious children's book. Um, but I was fairly successful at, you know, kind of whacking down the weeds in the front of my house. But oh my God, this backyard is a whole other story. I keep telling people it's like amber waves of grain back here. Like they literally, the, 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 the stalks of grass are taller than me and they have the audacity to freaking wave back and forth outside my window. <laughs> you have a new ecosystem out there. I'm so serious. You there are supporting are local girl. wildlife. There are creatures, there are insects. I hear hella noises. I'm like, what even is that? I don't want to know. And then the other day I was out there trying to weed whack. And the hilarious part is like, I don't know if it's me. And I'm I'm totally open to the idea that it's me. And I just don't know what I'm doing. But I swear I'd be weed whacking for like 20 seconds. And the darn stalks get all wrapped around the weed whacker. So I got to turn it off, take out the battery. Pull all these stalks out of the weed whacker and try again. And like every 20 seconds, I got to stop to do that. And I'm just thinking, this is just, you know, I like to be great at things. (laughs) (laughs) I like to be competent at things. I like to, you know, if it's a rubric from one to five, I want a five. And on this like weed whacking yard care rubric, I'm not even sure I'm a one, to be honest. And it's just... It's just hurting my pride. I I believe in you. And uh, I would especially (laughs) believe in you if you, uh, I I think you should go live like on Instagram or YouTube. No, no. (laughs) Maybe we can start some kind of like charity drive. (laughs) You know how they have like people watching, you can watch people run the live marathons like 235 times around their own house. Well, maybe we could like do a charity drive and just like, how long will Lauren last? Like $10 for every hour. (laughs) I think it's. I'm gonna say bet low, people. Bet low. All right, Lon, it's time for you to confess. Well, um, because of quarantine, I've had a little bit more time to uh, play some video games, and (laughs) one of those video games on the Nintendo Switch is Animal Crossing, which has a lot of hype right now. Oh my god! Hey, you know what? I mean, (laughs) if you don't know what Animal Crossing is, basically, you get to create a reality inside of a video game that doesn't exist. In, in your own life. So basically you build an island, you build your house with furniture. And I mean, it's the whole premise of the game, but it gets really I don't deep, get like, where, where are the animals crossing to? I don't get it. I don't know. I just play the game and pay the money for the game. That's about all I do. But <laughs> uh, for me, it's um, caring. Like it's, it's really funny when I try to explain it to people because they're like, I don't, it's like, what are you doing? It's like, oh, I'm going into debt to pay for the mortgage on my house in animal crossing <laughs> they're like what yeah so i have to like i have like to pay this is the fun mortgage. because <laughs> i i own i owe hundreds of thousands of bells which is a currency in the game 
And it just sounds so mundane. It's like, oh, I really like spending my time arranging the furniture in my house (laughs) or designing my garden. And it's like, it just, I think what's hilarious about it is that it's like real life, except you actually get to go outside and do things. And so for me, my particular quarantine quirk is caring a little bit too hard about virtual wallpaper in my virtual house because I have to pay my virtual mortgage. And... It's virtual like, wallpaper. I cannot. My virtual, my virtual furniture, right? And then I'm like, really, I'm really into making sure that my furniture matches each other, like my virtual furniture. Like I'm just pointing that out, and uh, and, and and then like there's like these virtual citizens of my island, and uh, I'm like, oh wait, I gotta make sure I talk to this particular island creature every day, or re- our okay. relationship. I have That's a good. really serious question. Yes. This is really serious. Is it, are you okay? Because I am. <laughs> <laughs> no. I need to know if, and just wait, let me finish. Have you made any sort of checklist and or spreadsheet in relation to Animal Crossing? I have not. However, I have downloaded an app that has a spreadsheet. <laughs> Does that count? I have an app that tells me how much items sell for so I can maximize my profit. Oh, my God. I can't with you. I can't. Oh, my God. Okay, the second you make a freaking checklist of things that you need to get done in Animal Crossing, I I am calling the authorities because you have the authorities. I don't know. know. Look, Lauren, join us. And it's it's hilarious because I've gotten everyone in my house to also get onto Animal Crossing. And, yeah. you know, it's really – it's great to live in a virtual reality where I can go outside and dig holes. <laughs> yeah. Your, your persuasion skills are scary. <laughs> I would be a great salesperson. Like, that would be a second <laughs> career if I wasn't in education. I think I'd sell lots of cars. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really grateful that you don't have to do that. Uh, I know, I know. So that's that's our quarantine quirks. (laughs) That brings us to the end of episode four. And we want to leave you with this quote going back to um, everything we've tried to bring up in this first episode of a few episodes that will be about equity. And this is a quote from one of my favorite favorites, James Baldwin. And he said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Thank you for being with us on today's episode. We'll see you soon. Subscribe.